Welcome to Philosopher Rock, where two guys have rock in their heads. In this episode, we will be discussing founding member of Fleetwood Mac, Peter Green. Sadly, Peter passed away this year, and we thought we would have a brief look at this legendary guitarist's life. We will discuss his life, his time in Germany with Commune One, his guitar, which is a story in itself, and we will discuss the use of drugs and mental illness. To help us with this episode, we are joined by Cliff Garner, a fellow muso and authority on the historical era upon which our episode is based. So, let's now join Brian, GK, and special guest Cliff as they discuss the life and times of Peter Green. So here we are again on Philosopher Rock. This is episode seven. It's episode seven, isn't it, Brian? Yeah. Okay, so episode seven, and I'm your host, GK. On the line with me from Cincinnati, Ohio, we've got Brian. Uh, Good morning, Brian. Good evening, Garth. How are you doing? (laughs) I'm doing good, thank you. As I say, we got a special guest with us, Cliff Garner, today. Coming all the way from Chicago, is it um, Chicago, Cliff? No, no, Springfield, Illinois. Okay, Illinois. Lincoln's home. Okay, cool. So, yes, this is the first time uh, we're having a guest on the Philosopher Rock show. Now, on this episode, we're going to be talking about Peter Green of Fleetwood Mac. Um, And so we touch ever so briefly on Fleetwood Mac here and just understand we're going to be talking about uh, the, the Peter Green mainly is who we're going to be focusing on. And if you haven't heard about him before, and, you know, I understand a lot of people may not have, then perhaps you'll learn some things. And um, conversely, if you know a lot about him, I'm going to ask you to be a bit forgiving of us as we'll be on a bit of a learning curve here as well. Um, now, as far as uh, Fleetwood Mac goes, I like to, in my personal opinion, break them down uh, because there have been, you know, 50 year over 50 years uh, history of Fleetwood Mac and so many different uh, members of the band. I, in my mind, I break them down to four separate eras, right? I break them down to the Peter Green era. That's the first era, say, you know, 67 to uh, uh, 70, somewhere around there. And then and then I, I have the Bob Welch era where they got the new singer, Bob Welch, guitarist. He came in for a couple of uh, years and a few good albums. And then we have the... The, the era that most people will know about, and that'll be the uh, Stevie Nicks, Lindsay Buckingham era. That one has been, you know, where they had their biggest uh, commercial success that everyone will know about. Um, and if you don't know about them, maybe you're a bit too young. Uh, and then you have this, what I term, in my personal opinion, this latest era where they've, um, uh, sadly, in my opinion, um, Lindsay Buckingham has left the group and um, they've, replaced him with a couple of guitarists and another singer. One of those is a well-known New New Zealand artist called uh, Neil Finn. Now, Neil Finn, um, when I lived in New Zealand, I lived in a town one over from Neil Finn, and um, I used to visit where him and his brothers grew up a fair bit. So 
And now Neil Finn and his brother were in a super huge, successful Kiwi band called Split Ends. Um, and then, mm. of course, after that, um, he was in um, Crowded House. But the thing about Split Ends, I'll never forget Split Ends, because Split Ends um, is the only band that I've walked out twice on. I've only, on, I've only ever walked out of w- uh, one band in two separate countries twice. So I walked out of Split Ends concert in New Zealand and I walked out of a Split Ends concert in Australia because I just can't stand them live. Um, and, and that's just my comment and that's just my opinion. Now, Crowded House was a far better band, okay, in my opinion, but I have never left any band, walked out of any bands twice in, in two different countries. So there you go. That's my my point about um, split ends. But that's no reflection on Neil Finn himself, okay? I'm just saying it's just a you know one of those things <laughs> that I, I will never forget. Um, now, as I said, um, we want to talk about Peter Green. I'm just going to talk super briefly here. He's born um, Peter Greenbaum in 1946 at Bethnal Green in London, which along with Muswell Hill, um, the home suburbs of the Kinks is a well-known Jewish suburb of London. Um, and Peter Green was a founding member of Fleetwood Mac and as such was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1998. And he has been called one of the greatest guitarists of all time. Now, there's a couple of reasons for that. We're talking about style there. We're going to talk to Brian about that in a second um, because he knows a bit more about that than I do. But, but before he was in Fleetwood Mac, he was in... Um, for a brief time, I think one album, John Mayles' Blues Breakers. Now, the Blues Breakers, it itself was a band that had so many people pass through it, so many brilliant musos. Um, you've got John McVie, who actually ended up in Fleetwood Mac. Um, you've got Eric Clapton, you've got Jack Bruce, you've got Mick Fleetwood. No need to say any more about Mick Fleetwood. Uh, Mick Taylor. You've got Andy Fraser, who came to fame in free, but at the age of 15... Uh, was in John Mayles Blues Breakers, brilliant bass player. Love to talk more about that, but that's for another time. Um, but there were so many musos in Miles Blues Breakers that so a, a few of those guys moved on into Fleetwood Mac, and that very first version of Fleetwood Mac, it had to be a success, you know. It had to be a brilliant success, in my opinion. Um, anyway, when they kicked off, uh, Pete Green wrote a number of songs that were charting singles in the time. If you're young, you probably won't know them, but there was Albatross, a uh, favourite of mine, uh, Black Magic Woman, uh, which is a song that Santana later had a huge hit with. Um, there was a song called Man of the World, and one that we're going to focus on here a bit later, The Green Manalishi with a two-pronged crown. We're going to be discussing that shortly. Uh, that was later covered by Judas Priest. And something here that Cliff's going to talk about later, Peter Green finished up with Fleetwood Mac around about 1970, after uh, a meeting with Ushi Obermeyer and Rainer Langhams of Kommuna Eins uh, in Germany. But I'm going to let Cliff get, get into that a bit later, but it's a very important topic that I think we need to talk about this um, Commune 1 or Kommuna Eins. Um, anyway, so I think we'll leave that very brief, and I know it's a very brief intro to the show, very brief into, intro to Pete Green, but... We have so much more meat coming in this that I had to make that brief so that I can get to uh, uh, Brian and our, our guest a little bit later there, Cliff. So, Brian, can you give us a bit of an overview, ever so brief, Brian, on the musical style of Pete Green? Yeah. So, basically, Pete Green was a traditional blues-type player. And when I say traditional blues, it, it was um, akin to the Delta blues, like 
you know, a la American players like Alan Wolf, Robert Johnson, John Lee Hooker. Um, his sound gradually evolved into a more melodic and emotive, like really almost an even like a dark, trancey, psychedelic style. Then that, that was kind of like a, I would call almost like the a one phase of, uh, of his style. But then by their third album, the Fleetwood Mac album, um, which is then play on, he was exploring more of an almost like an atmospheric and kind of a, an original direction that like it departed to some degree. It departed from like the traditional cookie cutter blues for some more like intricate textures and including some like Latin and shuffle type styles. Uh, as well as by the fourth studio album by Fleetwood Mac, he was incorporating even almost a little bit of like country flavors, um, something that might even be reminiscent of like what the Grateful Dead was doing at the time. Um, so he he's he was kind of a very um, very complex player. Um, he wasn't really what you know some people would consider a shredder or anything like that. His even the, the um, Depending on what style he was doing, and regardless of what he was doing, he was a little different than most of the people that came from the same group that he came from. He wasn't flashy in a sense, in the in the normal sense. Um, not so much of an out front um, guitar player that kind of like a, a guitar hero type of guy, like Jimmy Page or Eric Clapton or anything like that. I think he was more concerned with the feeling versus the um, the showmanship, so to speak. Um, but he did achieve uh, a cult status um, for multiple reasons. Um, and I think we can turn it over to Cliff now to, to maybe talk about some of the the reasons that he became like a cult, um, achieved a cult status or whatever, because it's not all not all of it had to do with exactly his playing style. So Cliff, turn it over to you to maybe talk to talk to us about um, Peter Green, the man versus yeah. Peter Green, the uh, the musician. Right, the uh, the legend, right? One of the things that people here in the States don't really appreciate about who he was was that he was um, really rivaling what um, what Jimmy Page was doing with Led Zeppelin at the time. And, and in Europe, he, he was huge. I mean, just totally mm-hmm. huge. And uh, one of the things about the, uh, the dead angle, um, he, uh, he met up with Owsley. The acid uh, maker mm-hmm. uh, in uh, uh, what I think it was '68 when they did tour of the U.S. Yeah, '68 or '9, and he—that's uh, when he started doing the acid, and he uh, really got into it. So, so there was there was that, but he he was also listening to Garcia, and they were talking, you know, about improvision and how. Spontaneous, um, the spontaneous creation, you know, was uh, a real um, important, and uh, there was a spiritual quality that would come out through that. And uh, he, he was uh, influenced by that whole thinking at the time. But then, same with the blues too. I mean, he he picked up on the old blues guys, Elmore James and uh, Robert Johnson and BB King, and BB uh, King uh, himself. Probably gave him the best compliment I ever ever saw about him, uh, where he said that uh, that he gave him the chills just to listen to him play. That uh, the the other rock guitar players eh, they didn't care so much, but with with him he was special. He'd get a lot of emotion out of one note. 
And I, that's, that's one of the things I like about it, uh, is, is uh, playing. Uh, the, the one album I had was uh, was the Chicago album. And he's that they sat in with, uh, oh, goodness, it was Buddy Guy. <clears throat> Otis Band uh, played piano on it. He was dying at the time. I, I, I don't know if he did any recordings after that or not. And there was a, there were a few others that came in too. Was, these were, uh, you know, some of the greats, and they they uh, they sat in with them, uh, the Chicago sessions. And, and those are really a really exceptional out, uh, songs on that album. It's it's a really good one. And, but that was also a real pivotal kind of event, apparently for uh, for at least. Uh, Danny Kerwin, I guess, uh, I guess he felt kind of guilty about stealing black, black music at the time. Um, but, but he was a rival to, uh, like I say, they were a rival to Led Zeppelin in, in, in Europe. They didn't quite hit over here as quite as hard. They, 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 um, for some reason just didn't, uh, translate as well as Zeppelin did. Zeppelin really struck some kind of a chord. Maybe it was the aggression. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I think so, yeah. Yeah, but but there was some aggression in their music too. I if you listen to Oh Well, uh, yeah. Part One, that is that 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 knock your socks off. That, that happens to be that happens to be my favorite one from that era too. By the way. Yeah, well, I I liked it a lot. I had a roommate that uh, he uh, he used to uh, <laughs> uh, he liked the second verse really well, and he would turn it a turn it into a, a railing against God, and he would. Uh, Get get a little lit up at night, and he'd start he'd start singing it. It was really crazy. Just quickly on the topic of the song, oh well, uh, particularly the lyrics. It's interesting because Green says, just after sort of cutting himself down and uh, having a low self opinion of himself, he says, "When I talked to God, I knew He'd understand." He said, "Stick by me, and I'll be your guiding hand. But don't ask me what I think of you." I might not give you the answer that you want me to. And it is true that God does have something to say about us that's not particularly appealing, um, that we are in a broken, sinful state, fallen and broken and guilty before God. So, of course, we would want to say, as the Bible says, that he has provided a way for us to be sanctified through Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross. The life that he lived was sinless and substitute for us if we just are willing to basically just humble ourselves and ask for forgiveness. It's there for us. But, but Green, Green, was the, Green was the Green God, and uh, that's really where the, the, that whole cult status comes from he was he was an exceptional player but you know he had clapton and he had hendrix who was on in his own universe and then he had him mm-hmm. and, and jimmy page was in there too but but the thing is is you know he was the guy that replaced clapton in in, in the blues breakers and and you know people here in the states really never caught on to them either but that Fabulous band, wonderful blues and jazz. He did a lot of jazz as well. Mail did. Um, yeah. But uh, but they were huge at the time. They were hit makers. Right. And he he had a couple hits. I think it was the uh, I think it was Albatross that he did with them. That was such a big hit, and it just that 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 was uh, that really put him across as like it 
at Clapton's level because he was the suitable replacement to Clapton. Uh, they they made fun of him at first, but then they then after he played a little bit, they they heard that albatross. It was like totally different world. They were like, "Wow, this guy is great." Yeah. So that uh, that changed their minds about him, and uh, and he became like I say the green god. You know, Eric Clapton was god, right? Did did you ever hear that? I'm not I'm not sure if you're as old as I am. <laughs> But the people my age, you know, we heard that a lot, and everybody would say that. And it was like, you know, personally, I, I like the Zeppelin better, but. <laughs> yeah, me too. I mean, I do like Clapton for sure, but yeah. Um, but it's, well, it's they're two different. Stuff. Yeah. I mean, I pretty much like anything he's done, he's done, but I mean, they were two different. It's kind of funny because they all. You know, Clapton and Page and, and Beck all really kind of came up in the same ranks anyway through um, oh, yeah. through the Yardbirds and everything else. So yeah, these guys were these guys were already hit makers and and no, notable players, you know, early on. But yeah, but I mean, it's like as far as Green was concerned, he just had such a different style. I mean, um, yeah, yeah. It, no, like just a, a more laid back kind of thing was in, in general in general. His uh, his big influence uh, was BB King, uh, from from what a lot of people I've read, you know, were saying, and and he did have that kind of a he didn't have to play pass. It's just like you pointed out, you know, it it wasn't the speed because Johnny Winter. I mean, you want to talk about fast guitar players? He was fast. He was really good. No, no, yeah. not taking anything away from Johnny Winter. I, I love Johnny Winter, but. But with Green, it was just like BB King. He he could get more out of one note than Johnny Winter could out of out of a whole slew of notes on certain right. songs. Right. And, you know, songs Johnny Winter was in his own element too. But uh, but that that was just the way of it. You know, he he could get a lot out of one. And and, and that that takes some doing. You have to you have to feel the song. Yeah, definitely. Well, you had mentioned that he, you had mentioned that he, um, had some contact with the guys from the West Coast, like say, like Cal the California scene. Um, especially as it is related to LSD. <laughs> and I know, yeah. I know, I know that there was a, and you mentioned this popularity in Europe, which didn't really, um, quite happen here in the U.S. But what, can you tell us a little bit about like the whole, um, his whole um, influence and his whole status, as far, especially as far as like kind of like uh, the cult status that he had in in Europe, like relating to like Germany and I know Germany was like. Uh, well, well, Germany. Um, when when we talk about the uh, the Kommuna Eins uh, stuff, uh, yeah, you, you you have to figure. Germany was defeated in World War II, and a lot of the people that ran the country were old Nazis. Yeah. Uh, it's impossible to get rid of them all. And so when when the 60s rolled around and all the revolution was in the air, you know, like it was here and like it was everywhere. Uh, right. In, in, the, uh, in the communist countries, too. Uh, the, the rebellion that was coming out had a certain... Uh, Element of shame, I think you would say. 
So, yeah. so when we look to Germany and what was going on there, it, it's a different world than here in the West, the, the further West, I should say, would could think about, you know, because there was there were really strange, complicating factors going on in that. There was a lot of people whose families uh, were actually from Poland and uh, from other areas in, in the Central and Eastern Asia, uh, Europe that uh, were forced out at the yeah. end of the war. And, and they, they ended up going to East or West Germany, one or the other. There was a huge, uh, huge number that came out of, like, Romania. And they they were chased uh, chased out, and they, whole villages of people moved, and they they became kind of repatriated, and, uh, and so you you had a you had some really weird um, counter culture, well not counter, but cross cultural kind of uh, uh, issues over there. Now with Green, he that 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 was the that was the music of the victors. Okay, so. With 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 Germany, you had um, you had a, a style of music that was more um, <laughs> folkish, I suppose, in a certain yeah. sense. You know, folkish as we would tend to think, and and it was you know traditional kind of umpa umpa kind of stuff. Um, yeah, <laughs> and, and, and you didn't if you go through um, the Balkans, you hear you hear a lot of that too. Because uh, uh, that, that traditional sound uh, was even in Turkey when I was living there. You, you would hear this style of music, and, and it's still really popular in in, in those areas. Uh, there, there's a term for that. I can't think of what it is. It's a really uh, Cliff. Do you mean yeah. schla- Do you mean Schlager? Schlager. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Schlager music. And, hmm. and it's it's folkish, it's folk, it's bands, it's marches, it's you know stuff with an accordion, you know, and really weepy kind of things. And, and, and the Romanians love that stuff. Just so you know, Cliff. Yeah. Ich liebe Schlager. <laughs> I love Schlager. I, I actually do like Schlager music. That's why I, I know. I, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> I don't mind it at all. When when I was on that bus going through uh, Bulgaria with a with a bunch of sweaty uh, Romanian women, <laughs> <laughs> they were playing that stuff on the videos, and, and they were just eating it up. And, and I'm sitting there kind of laughing because you know they they they're all getting weepy because you know some of the songs are real sad, you know. <laughs> but but that that sounds really huge. And, 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 you know, over here, we don't have that reference, you know, it's just not there. And the French have a little of it, but you really hear a lot of it in the Balkans. Uh, the Yugoslavs and the, uh, the Albanians and the Bulgars and the Romanians, they, they just, they, they love this style of music. And, and you hear it all over. In, and, in and Poland. Country. And Poland as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, and Poland too. Well, I, I guess, uh, I guess all those little uh, places that the, the Russia had at one time also, uh, you, you hear it there. But not so much in Russia, uh, but Ukraine and uh, Belarus and uh, I, I think uh, Lithuania. Really interesting kind of music, but it 
you know, at the same time, that, that, that was what was going up against the rock and roll. And uh, rock kind of walked all over it. Cliff, um, can you talk to us about a bit about um, yeah, talk us through what happened that night that you know the fateful LSD trip in Germany. Okay, well, well, that that uh, that book, uh, the uh, Red Army Faction Blues, it's told from a point of view of a guy named uh, uh, Peter uh, Urbach. He was the provocateur that uh, that was giving the bombs and the drugs to the uh, the whole group at the Kommune Heinz and uh, he was um, he was working with the, the German uh, Verfassungsschutz office which was uh, connected to the secret police there hmm. and he was uh, really really an important character as far as it went because it, he was actually leading them into crazier and crazier um, things they started off, uh, it was uh, uh, Reiner Longhans. He had uh, Fritz Teufel, and they had uh, uh, Dieter Kunzelmann. These were kind of the, some of the key players there. But uh, Longhans was really one of the big focuses of it. He, was, he had this bushy hair and the John Lennon glasses, came from a well-dressed, real flag. A uh, real glib fellow, and uh, but they were all you know radicals. They read their uh, uh, Marx. They read uh, Marcuse. All those people, you know, they they were totally Frankfurt School neo Marxists. They hated the Russians and the the communism that came out of there. And they didn't like Stasi and all that. You know, they they were they were up against them as much as they. They were the, the best. So they, um, they, were, uh, they, they started off kind of like Abby Hoffman and uh, Jerry Rubin. They, they were kind of clowns. They, they did some goofy things to celebrate and uh, also um, uh, street theater kind of stuff, right? You know, it, it, it elevated the consciousness. But they they did they did some crazy things. I, one of them was uh, they they did a uh, pudding assassination of uh, Hubert Humphrey. They they uh, got arrested for uh, they they were trying to make a bomb. They found all this stuff for it, but it didn't work out. And they but they ended up with pudding. <laughs> and they took it huh. they took it there and it got arrested because the, the, they they got the word that they were going to try to put a hit on on our, on our at the time uh, vice president. Uh, so <laughs> they they ended up getting in the uh, um, papers and they were called the Eleven Little Oswalds and uh, the commune was was a uh, originally they 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 believed in you know the the Marxist ideals you know sharing and all this everything in common right and uh, so they they had runaways and they had all kinds of people just coming in and staying there. They were uh, they were also practicing free love at a very early point in that, um, mm. which um, would ended up being a, a thing that fractured the left at the time. In, in this, uh, Andreas Bader and uh, Gudrun Edenslin and uh, Ulrich and Meinhof, those three, and and other people too. Uh, they they were very early coming in and they were in and out and bouncing around and. Uh, 
that that uh, kind of coalesced into several different uh, uh, political uh, movements in Germany uh, among the you know younger radicals. But what had happened is, is as time went on, especially with the drug use, because uh, uh, like I say, Urbach was providing the drugs. Uh, he was bringing in. Uh, at first, it was hashish, and that was coming in from Turkey. <laughs> And and uh, then then it, then it ended up getting into uh, heroin. They, they, he was using a term clink, which mm. uh, was probably the street name for it. Yeah. They, they also they were also getting starting to get LSD and uh, and, and, and STP, which as um, a young radical drug drug head, uh, I never did try, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> But it, but yeah, I, I was I was a, a child of the '70s myself, and uh, uh, yeah, acid was real popular. I, I used to really like it a lot, and I used to when I was bad, I used to sell it, and, uh, and so I know a lot of what this guy was talking about. And same with uh, what uh, Green in the book was uh, discussing. So so anyway, what what had happened is is that these these groups started splitting off and they, they got into the drugs and they um, eventually what happened is, is that uh, Longhans met Ushi uh, uh, Obermeyer. Yeah. Ushi Obermeyer, who was a top model. She was also a percussionist and vocalist with uh, uh, Amandul. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. You, you ever heard them? Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> she was part of the original group. And, huh. uh, uh, probably just as much to just get her up there shaking the maracas. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Future episode, Brian. Brian, I think yeah. a future episode. But it was also said that like she was the most beautiful woman in Germany at the time or in some uh, uh, places I've seen, she's the most beautiful woman in the world. So um, she'd have been something to have up there on stage in the band, but also in this uh, in this commune and just attracting all of these people. But, she was a fan of Fleetwood Mac, wasn't she? At that era, that's how they fan of a lot of right. Uh, she had, she, in fact, uh, one of the people she carried on a, a, a relationship uh, outside of a uh, Longhans was uh, Jimi Hendrix. She had a fling with him for a while. Yeah, and it, that was pretty famous. Uh, you know, I mean, top guitar player in the world and uh, one of the most beautiful women anywhere. You know, and she was she was gorgeous, just drop dead gorgeous. She's still beautiful. Uh, at, even even at the age she's at, um, but she was not very intellectual. Okay, these other guys were, and, and even Botter, you know, he was he had uh, his he had actually read. You know, she didn't like to read. Uh, in fact, uh, she was really the face of the sexual revolution in Germany. Uh, well, well, Britain had Twiggy, and we had uh, we had our. Our women over here, who, who I, I can't think now, but she was actually the real face of it and, uh, and, and a real high focal point. And that's really what broke up Kamuna Eins, uh, was, was the fact that she and, and Langerhans and some of the others, they, they were, they, their wealth set them apart from the others. And the others were kind of hanging out and, you know, Looking for money. Uh, they had a they had a biker gang that was uh, uh, associated with them, and they 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 wanted a piece of the action with the money, and and they didn't get it, and they, so they trashed the place, and that really kind of ended the whole 
the whole thing there. When they entered the uh, the Comuna Ice, they moved to another place. In fact, they moved out of Berlin. Okay, and this is really where the key was. Because, you know, Berlin was a special set of circumstances. And so where they moved, they went to Munich. And they set up shop over there. They, they bounced around a little bit first, but but uh, Langerhans found a castle uh, that was out, out in the middle of nowhere outside of Munich. And this was called the Highfish uh, Kommune. And that was, um, that was where the, the incident with uh, Peter Greenham. And by this point, you had the Bader Meinhof gang actually had gelled somewhat. And, and it came out of a, a group called the Tupamaros which uh, was named after a um, Latin American uh, rebellious group that uh, and that they wanted to emulate, and they were basically terrorists. Uh, this this was a councilman and uh, and, and a fellow named uh, Mahler, who was also kind of in and out. He was a uh, horse. Mahler was a was a lawyer. He was a radical lawyer that represented a lot of these folks, and he got caught up in the radicalism himself. And they they started uh, training in, uh, they went to Jordan, and uh, they trained there. They got kicked out of there, probably drugs and stuff. And uh, they ended up uh, training with the uh, Palestinians, the PLO. And then from there, uh, they, they, they came back to Germany after traveling around a bit. I think they went to Cuba for a little bit. I think the reason they weren't welcome um, in the Middle East is because they were practicing free love, and um, the, the Muslim uh, Muslim blokes weren't weren't in for that. They didn't want them. They asked them to keep that uh, and the nudity uh, on on the down low, but they 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 refused. I think, and so um, you know, that some of them were booted out and just had to go back to Europe. Yeah, it was the uh, the character of, uh, of Urbach really makes fun of that. He he uh, because. As a narrator, he his perspective is really suspect. You know, you, you, you really can't trust him. And they shouldn't have trusted him either. <laughs> and I think that that was part of the guy's, uh, the writer's, uh, his name's, uh, I'm sorry, Ada Wilson. And he's a musician, by the way. Uh, it was in a power pop band in England. Uh, but he, uh, he he kind of mocks them for that. Uh, that the, they they were you know all the stupid commies, right? Even though he was seeing the same stuff and he was passing out the pamphlets and working with them, uh, even screwing around with a couple of the girls in the group, uh, he was uh, he's still cynical about them, you know. And, and and one of the things about Hans is or longer Hans was that he was becoming bourgeois, and and he really was. Uh, with him and, and, and Obermeyer, what they were doing was that they were becoming this um, trendy, leftist, uh, kind of hipster kind of thing. You know, and, and we see this today. You know, I mean, this kind of character is still around big, big time. And that was them. They were the, they were the rich kids that uh, thought they were going to strike a blow against the man, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, you know, there was a good reason why he was, was cynical of them. It, in fact, in the story, he was the one that stirred the bikers up uh, by saying, well, you know, you deserve some money. <laughs> and, and they're like, yeah, yeah, we do. And so they, they tear the place up because <laughs> they didn't get any. And so, so at any rate, uh, but that, that, that whole moving out and getting into the high fish comuna and this castle, they were talking about art. And art is a revolutionary act. 
uh, the, the worker was no longer important, right? The proletariat, you know, wasn't going to rise up. He was too satisfied with the with the way that things were, and so they the the revolutionary uh, cutting edge was going to be the artists, right? You've you heard this nonsense. Yeah. It, they they were they were saying this stuff, and this was this is back in 1969 and 70. So this this uh, this these ideas, though, were also very similar to what the dead was saying in California. <laughs> so, so, do you think had, that their you think that their interest in green was just that they could capitalize on his popularity, or do you think that as an artist, they, they well, well, according to this uh, this Ada Wilson, and, and like I say, he's he's not a reliable narrator. Okay. Uh, we, we have to take what he has to say with a grain of salt because what he thinks or what he says is that when Peter Green was lured away, okay, that, that there were, he, he, Urbach was supposedly in the car with them and he saw, or, or not with them, but in another car watching them go up. Uh, I can't remember which, but, but, uh, so let's set the stage. So what happens is Fleetwood Mac is touring in Germany and um, he meets up with members of the um, Communa One or Commune One or K One. Well, it was it was it was uh, Ushi and uh, and and Reiner that came out, and there were two women supposedly with them, and they they approached Peter Green and they started talking to him, and they they according to the book they were talking about music. Now. I, I've listened to some other accounts about this, and some of the guys from Fleetwood Mac say that there was only the two of them that came up, and they talked to me. It was like it was prearranged. And he gets in the car with them, and Danny Kerwin, I believe, goes with them at the same time, and they go out to the castle. They, they, gave, the, they gave the instructions to where they were at for the rest of the band. Now, the, the book, this Red Army Faction Blues, the band never shows up, or at least he doesn't see them. He shows up with uh, with Bader, Enslin, and Meinhof, and a couple other people, and they uh, they're kind of disgusted by what's going on, and they're not being allowed in. They want they were looking for money too, and uh, they leave him behind, and, and uh, they take uh, take everybody else back, and they were going to come back later. And according to his his story, there he goes in. And he meets up with Peter Green and gives him the acid. And that's the story. And he's not playing with anybody else. Now, that's totally unreliable because the fact is that when the band showed up and the manager showed up, he was there jamming with other people and on kind of a makeshift stage. And they recorded it. And I understand there's a recording of the music that came from that. Mm-hmm. And that he, uh, according to Green himself, uh, this was uh, kind of in his mind totally what he wanted to do, and it was it was totally spontaneous. They they there was no prearranged anything. It was all coming out of the atmosphere and, and being channeled through his guitar. Right. And and this was a kind of an ideal thing for him. But I understand this uh, that they were looking. For somebody to present the revolution 
that they envisioned to the world. They were looking for basically a focal point, almost a savior. And the book does get into this a little bit, that there was this expectation that came to him that was kind of given to him because of he was the unique person at the unique time and the unique place. Yeah. And, uh, and so he was at, in, in the book kind of goes in a, in a direction. I don't think the green would have actually totally agreed with that. He was Jesus for a time. And, um, the, the this is, um, like I say, I, I, I think from what I understand about green himself was that he, at that time, was becoming something of a Christian. He hmm. hadn't, hadn't become one just yet, but he was he was becoming that, and and that he was repudiating the uh, materialist values that the band was starting to display. See, this is where he he uh, he and uh, Long Hans and uh, Ushi Obermeyer really didn't agree because they were they were actually thinking you know mass media. Big star, uh, focal point. It's socially, you know, we can make, we can affect change this way. He wasn't seeing it quite like that. He was seeing it more that the, the spiritual value that came through the music was what was important. Right. He had a more, he had a more pure motive, I guess, probably, right? Yeah. I would say that. I, I, I would say that, that that's, that's exactly it, that he really, I think his heart was in the right place. He was just kind of <laughs> drifting around in the wrong places. But he was looking for something. And, and uh, they, they were, they had actually kind of found that something with themselves. They were selling sex. They were selling music. They were selling drugs. They were selling a lifestyle, the sexual revolution, right? Uh, yeah. the feminism was kind of a byproduct for some of the, some of them, but, but it was really more of a, a, a precursor of this uh, mass marketing kind of ideas that we've got today and that, mm-hmm. that's now falling apart, thankfully. So if I've gathered everything that that I know and based on what you've said, I mean, so I'd like to get to the the, the meaning behind Green sure. Man Alicia in a, in a few minutes here. But but sure. as far as that incident in Munich was kind of the turning point for Green, though, right? I mean, as far as yeah, like... Well, he the, and Kerwin were never the same after that. Right, right. And, and they they um they were casualties actually. Right. And uh, it seems to be that not not necessarily that it was entirely, but it seems to be it hinges a lot on the the drug use, right? Just to make things a bit clear here, I want to talk a bit about Green's time in Germany. During March 1970, Fleetwood Mac was touring Germany when Peter Green met up with members of Kommune 1. That's Commune 1 or K1. While he was with them, he took LSD and from this event, things changed in a major way for both him and Fleetwood Mac. Fleetwood Mac manager said that this was a crucial point in the decline of Green's mental health. It was shortly after this that Green left Fleetwood Mac. Apparently, he had met Uschi Obermeyer and Reiner Langhams and was invited to hang out with them at their High Fleischer Commune. When he didn't return to the band, other members of Fleetwood Mac went to fetch him. Apparently he was having a wonderful time jamming with the commune members and doing drugs. In later times, Green said of the event, quote, I had a good play there. It was great. Someone recorded it. They gave me a tape. There were people playing along, a few of us just fooling around, and it was, yeah, it was great, unquote. He told Jeremy Spencer at the time, 
quote, that's the most spiritual music I've ever recorded in my life, unquote. Now, Jeremy Spencer was another member of Fleetwood Mac at the time. So subsequently, after a final appearance with Fleetwood Mac in May 1970, Green left the band. And as I mentioned earlier, this was a major turning point for Green as far as playing music and his mental health are concerned, as he was later diagnosed with schizophrenia and spent time in psychiatric hospitals and even undergoing electroconvulsive therapy. All right, so I just wanted to throw that in there to make it clear what we're talking about here. Okay, now before we get back to the show, let me remind you that all previous episodes of Philosopher Rock are available on our YouTube channel, so please find us on YouTube and remember to like and subscribe. Alternatively, you can go to our website, Like Flint Radio, that's www.likeflintradio.com, www.likeflintradio.com, and there you can find all our previous shows and maybe some other things that might be of interest to you. If you want to contact us, you can email us at philosopherrock at gmail.com. That's philosopherrock at gmail.com. Also, please bear in mind that unless otherwise stated, the opinions expressed in this show are those of the hosts and their guest. Okay, that's enough from me. Now, let's get back to the show. There was a program, and, and they, this guy, he had to yank it because there was some... I think Fleetwood Mac actually went after him because of some of the, the music they put on there, uh, but it wasn't Green himself. Uh, but he he was talking about different drug casualties, you know, especially with acid, because there were so many of them in the sixties and seventies that just lost it because of that. But but it, it it wasn't so much the drug itself by itself. There was a, a mental state that he was in and was probably partly physical at least that right. uh, that that inclined him towards uh, perhaps having uh, mental problems and and I, that's exactly where I want to like pinpoint because the, mm-hmm. that those particular drugs the psychedelic psychotropic drugs do I believe from my own experience and you'd probably vouch for this as well but they do mm-hmm. um, they do open something up in the human to a more spiritual experience that can be co-opted by people who have an agenda that's nefarious. Oh yeah. So, and well, what what happens is, is that your filters are removed. Right. Right. Exactly. We, we our perception. We we actually know more than what we see and perceive consciously. Right. And and, and if you remove that filter. You'll you'll notice things that you didn't notice, right? And you'll experience things in, in in your mind and in your emotions that you weren't aware of, but they were there. Exactly, um, and that can that can take its toll on the human psyche, especially if you're if you've already got issues of confusion, possibly, or let's say, and, and you're kind of oh, like yeah. on the kind of on the fence about where you're going to go spiritually. And then you get pushed or tipped by, you know, the agenda of, like I said, nefarious parties sure. and also, and also the, the spiritual element that you're coming in contact with, which I mean, in my experience was actually what I would say was a demon. Um, and yeah. so you, you can get, you get in spiritual information there as well, like transcendently. And then um, that, that's where I think Green start, sort of started to lose lose his mental faculties as far as like 
drifting well, into schizophrenia. I think that's pretty pretty right. We, we know that shortly after this, isn't it? He was diagnosed with schizophrenia. And the thing I was going to say about this is that, um, you know, especially if people have a predisposition to mental illness, um, the use of heavy drugs, especially regular, is, in my opinion, something that, you know, could trip you over into that if you have that predisposition. Sure. And the other thing, uh, though, about LSD that, that I'm just learning, because I've never had an experience with it, but it actually replicates the early stages of psychosis. So it can send you, sure. uh, you know, uh, send you around the bend, um, well, well, that's about right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and it can make you crazy. And um, and I'm sure it has affected a lot of people that way that were predis- predisposed to that. But also, sure. I would argue, um, and just my opinion, that uh, excessive use and constant use and all that, you know, you're just sort of asking for trouble as far as that, that goes. That leads us to this. I do want to talk about um, one of uh, Fleetwood Mac songs, and it's Pete, Pete Green written, um, the Green Manalishi, because this we there are a couple of different points of views about this song, the Green Manalishi with the yeah. two prong crown, right? Yeah. And now I I only come across I come across this song uh, uh, initially through Judas Priest um, because I was in a almost it was almost a Judas Priest cover band. We played so many Judas Priest songs <laughs> we could have been. And I think you have too, Brian, right? Um, yeah, yeah, we were, we were, we were specific, we were specifically a Judas Priest cover band, yeah. So. Yeah, you were specific, and we paid about a third, I think, about a third. But anyway, um, uh, Brian, I'm going to ask you to talk, give us your opinion, what you found out about the Green Manalishi. So this is the the Fleetwood Mac tune, and as far as I know, it's the last song that Peter Green recorded with Fleetwood Mac. Take us through it, Brian, and then Cliff and I will jump in after you give us the background. Yeah, sure. So it's it's an interesting song to start with because it's got a different kind of feel than what I what I you know would say Fleetwood Mac was kind of doing at the time. Anyway, it's got like a heavier, more doomy, foreboding kind of type of riff, something akin to like Smoke on the Water or something like that, but by Deep Purple. But um, so Green himself has at least you know, he waffles on everything that he talks about in general. But one of the things that he said, at least at one point, was that the song, the lyrics were about money. And mm-hmm. so I can see that given that he had become a person who basically wanted to eschew all like wealth or at least exorbitant wealth. But the interesting thing about it is, I mean, I guess lyrically we could read in that it's about money. Um, but there's a couple of couple of things in, in the song, a couple of things in the song lyrically, like imagery that he brings up in the song that remind me of something a little more dark. Like, OK, he's talking about the full moon, darkness cooks, uh, come creeping around, make me things I make me do things I don't want to do. And, he, you know, the idea of the Manalishi with the two prong crown. So I, I tried to find out what the word Manalishi even meant, but it sounds... Yeah. It's, it's Sanskrit. Yeah, yeah. oh, is it? Okay. Great serpent. Okay, well, there you go. And and <laughs> the, two prong, the two-pronged crown thing, so, you know, that gives, like, the imagery of, like, the horned kind of uh, demonic, you know, typical demon or devil imagery that we think of in today's... Well, not even just today, but typically through history, but 
when one of one of my experiences, and I don't know how relevant this is going to be to anything we're talking about, but this I just figure I'll share. One of my experiences, this is before I was really even paying attention to Fleetwood Mac in general, but specifically Pete Green or the song, because I don't know that I even heard this song until after this experience. But anyway, one of one of the times when I had used quite a bit of um, LSD and one one evening. Um, I encountered or had an encounter with what I would consider probably a spiritual, it had to have been a spiritual being, um, that sort of fit the description of this green manalishi with the two-pronged crown. Um, I know it's, it's weird and it's going to sound crazy to people who've never used drugs, especially psychedelic, psychedelic drugs, but this is a common theme in people who use, um, psychedelic drugs is these types of interactions with these types of spiritual beings um they see these serpent type beings and mm-hmm. communicate with communicate with them and everything like that and the the in this particular instance that i experienced there was this serpent type being with that was green um and the the weird thing is too this was way before the matrix came out the movie the matrix mm-hmm. which has a which has a bunch of occultish um, overtones to it anyway, but that 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 movie has a sort of green tint to it, and there mm-hmm. a lot when uh, when he's using the computer at the beginning, he's got that you got that black screen and he's um, typing and there's like green type going on, the little code that's popping up or whatever. That that's exactly what in my experience, that's exactly what this how this being manifest. It was like complete blackness against a complete black background, like dense, dead, dead black with this like green serpent horned um, being. And it, the, the messages that this being gave me were pretty incredible. Um, I'm, I still remember it very vividly. But so it, when I hear, you know, green and talking about this, these lyrics, and when I hear, you know, that the Manalishi Sanskrit thing has to do with like serpent, the idea of a serpent, it, it just takes me back to that and tie it together with the fact that together with the fact that he's using psychedelic drugs. And, you know, you've got them coming out of Nazi Germany or former Nazi Germany, which is all based in the occult. And then green himself, having been in bands like, um, uh, what were we, I can't think, think of their name now, <laughs> the guy that, he was in the band with a famous guy that clapped and everybody came through. Um, we just talked about Mayall. Yeah. John Mayall. I mean, they had a song, you know, I'm your witch doctor. So there's a lot of like, especially at that time in Britain too. Well, generally in Britain, it seems like, you know, paganism and occultism was kind of like a, a thing, you know, especially through like bands like Led Zeppelin and all that stuff. So all these things kind of have like a, common touch point it seems like all these themes and um so when green says that green man alishi you know we were sort of obliged to take his word he wrote the song but i think you know maybe it is about money but i think there's something else going on in there too um just the lyrics busting in on all my busting in on all my dreams making me see things i don't want to see sounds it's almost like a he's talking about Right. Something else, you know. But, you know, the thing about lyrics is that they they often ha- are, like, three-dimensional. Yes, and at least three-dimensional, yeah. Yeah, and there's other places it can go, uh, dream states and stuff. But the idea of it being money, I, I find it valid. But, right. But I, also, but I also look at the what you're talking about, too. That the, There's this 
kind of an entity that's totally not exactly like cat. And not only that, he's British. British money isn't green. Mm, good point. So there's there's something else going on here. I had to look it up when when I was when I was playing it. Uh, in, in a, I was in a band uh, in Macomb. There were a bunch of Chicago boys, and uh, actually they carried on after uh, after I left. Uh, but but we we were doing that in there, and we were doing uh, all kinds of metal, uh, kind of a glam metal at the time. And uh, but we did a lot of priests, and uh, and I did a lot of priests in different groups I was in over the years too. So you know, it's like I'm singing this song, so it's like I want to know what's in it. You know, what's this about? And I hunted it down, and it, and I figured out it was a it was Sanskrit, and Lishi is serpent, and Mana is 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 a prefix that's used to show something great, kind of like Maha Maharishi. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, it's comparable as, as a prefix. And so what you have is you have two elements that come together to make one word. The great serpent with the two-pronged crown, two, two, two horns, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, I understood that he rather saw that as his guitar. I forget where I read that. Um, but that, that was quite a, quite a while back. I, I had a lot of friends that were really into, uh, well, they, they were into a lot of other things too, but they were really into the stuff he was doing in the late seventies and early eighties. Well, well, that's right. This is why I said there's several opinions on this, right? Because we've right. already, there, there are, we've come up with a couple because didn't he say, well, also it was a barking dog talking to him, yeah. <laughs> a green, a green barking yeah. dog. There was a whole set of, Stop. And it's like he was saying that he changes his story. You know, he, reality is not bendable, but our perception of it is. No, oh, that's a good good point. Yeah. And that uh, that well, the book uh, goes into that, and and it, and you know, with an unreliable uh, narrator, you know, that becomes a really important idea. He, they, the guy did a great job. Ada Wilson did a really good job. If you know what you're getting into, uh, if you don't, I'm, I think it'd probably be a little bit harder reading. But the thing is, is that he may have changed his ideas about it as his mind about it changed. Ah, uh, yeah, good point. And so you would hear something one time, but you hear something else another time. Um, yeah. Sometimes it would develop. Sometimes it, he would just kind of glitch and maybe go back to the original story. You know, I wonder if his, I wonder if what we, what we deem as uh, mental illness is really kind of almost an outworking of the, the worldview that he actually wanted to live because he wanted to be spontaneous and, and right. be part of this kind of unfettered mindset. And, and think about the fact that if you change your story and your story is fluid and you just say whatever you want to say, he's almost living out the, 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 the mindset that he right. wanted to achieve, which I just, that just dawned on me right now. But I mean, cause oh, things like, because like, you know, at one point he said he didn't like using minor chords, but one of his biggest hits is in F sharp minor, you know, and it's like, <laughs> and, and, and when Kirk Hammett, I mean, I don't want to jump, jump ahead too far, but when Kirk Hammett, ended up buying his guitar he he kirk hammett from metallica he did a, um he did a participated in a pete green tribute album and so he <laughs> he took the guitar greeny and went to um went to peter green's house i guess or wherever he met him and, and he played right. the song 
for for him. And um, first of all, Peter Green said, "That's not my guitar." <laughs> and <laughs> you know, and yeah. Yeah. Kirk Hammett, Kirk Hammett was kind of just taken aback, like, "What do you?" That was the, like the first thing he said to him, and he's like, "You know, this is your guitar." And, and his his buddy said, um, Pete Green's buddy was kind of there as almost like an interpreter. He said, "Right." He thinks it's not his guitar because it doesn't have the red tint that it used to that had faded or whatever and um so anyway i guess hammett played the song for him and right when he was finished peter green turned to his friend that was there and said you know what's the weather going to be like this week he didn't even comment on the 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 song that had just been played to him which was you know and i guess his friend had said you know he does this all the time he did like your playing of it because i could tell he was tapping his foot the entire time you know and um somehow somehow that was a sign that you know he liked it but I'm almost wondering, I'm starting to wonder throughout the, this interview, if the guy wasn't as, you know, mentally um, incapable or damaged as we might think. Maybe he was living out some of what he wanted to see happen. You know what I mean? Right. But, you I know, mean, now. That, that's a valid thing. Uh, the point that he wanted this spontaneity and the changeability was part of his character. And, but it was also part of his philosophy, his outlook. Right. Um, and did that contribute to his mental illness or vice versa? Did the mental illness contribute to that? Uh, right. How much of it was drugs? Um, how much of it was the philosophy that was going on at the time? How much of it did he get from Owsley? Owsley was talking things like this. Um, yeah. And, and some of the death. Some of the guys in the death still did. Garcia did right up until the day he died. Regardless of whether or not Green was actually trying to live out his um, philosophy or his personal philosophy of a sort of improvised reality or whatever, it it is interesting to mention. I think it would be important for us to, to realize that to live an unhinged and unfettered sort of existence is really only going to complicate things and make them more chaotic. I mean, imagine if everybody did this, right? And I think what people don't want to realize that they think they they realize it, but they don't want to give assent to it is the idea that rules and boundaries actually produce more freedom. Now, some rules are unnecessary or maybe even overbearing, but rules and boundaries are really there to protect us, to give us more freedom. So, yeah. so you, you have uh, you have all this all coming together, and and plus the the improvisation of music. You know, it, it, I, I I've always liked to improvise. I, I I found that that I could do that. I was always able to sometimes come up with lyrics while I was singing along with a band and just kind of channeling it, you know, and yeah. where does it come from? You know, I mean, this is always a good question. We, we always, you know, kind of wonder where, where does that come from? Right. Exactly. Uh, it's, it's uh, non-physical. It's non-physical to start with. So we've already got, you you can rule out certain worldviews there, but yeah, I mean, it's, sure. there's, there's some, it's manifesting from somewhere, you know, even as a teacher, I, I, I'm stream of consciousness. Right. Uh, you know, and uh, so, you know, I, I do I do understand the, the, the point of view here. And, and, and it, there's a part of me that agrees with it. But I'm also leery of it mm-hmm. because there, there are sometimes things that you just kind of blurt out that, you know, it's like, why did I do that? Mm-hmm. I don't think that, 
you know? Yeah. And then there's the, the issue of reality. Uh, is, is this the psychosis or is it, is, is inspiration a form of madness? I don't mm. even go to that extreme. I don't want to completely discount the idea that he had some sort of like, um, you know, mental, um, issues because I mean, Bob Welsh, you know, the, who took, sure. who took Green, Green's place, he actually in, in an <laughs> interview had mentioned that he had mentioned that he had met Green. He met Green, let's say, on a Monday, I think, whatever day it was, he said. And then he noticed that Green had a piece of cheese in his hair. <laughs> and oh, that's hilarious. He said, he said that five days later, he still had that piece of cheese in his hair. So the guy, the, the guy wasn't, the guy wasn't like taking care of himself or that kind of thing, you know, which, which is a classic sign of taking, you know, you give, you abandon, you know, your own like well-being. That's a classic sign of mental illness, you know, but. Taking the dirty hippie to a new level. <laughs> Just thinking outside of the box, have you considered that he might have had a pet mouse in his hair? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I hadn't, that hadn't occurred to me, but. <laughs> yeah, I listened to the same interview. It's, it's hilarious. <laughs> um, so, lads, I want to move on to another interesting aspect um, about uh, Peter Green, and it's one that I. I find really interesting, um, and it's his guitar, um, Greeny the guitar. Now, I'll just quickly run through it and let you guys comment, but um, he had a 59 Les Paul, and um, he bought it during his Blues Breaker days when he was Miles Blues Breakers, um, and so say around about 1966, and we bought it secondhand, and it was $300, and uh, there was something strange and odd about this guitar, but this guitar has been called, you know, its nickname is Greeny or Moore's Greeny or Greeny's Moore or whatever it is, but Greeny's guitar. And it, it, it has been through the hands of three fantastic guitar players, one of my favourite of all times. It ended up with Gary Moore. Um, uh, but can we talk about that now, Brian? Have you got a couple of comments on that guitar? And can you tell us what was actually wrong with it and why it sounded like it did? Well, my knowledge of it is is as follows. So a lot of people were taken with the tone and uh, how he achieved that tone. So one of the speculations was the idea that the pickups had been um, turned out of phase. So basically what that means is that um, if you've got two pickups that have the same polarity and then you turn one of them and switch the polarity, then that, that'll give you an out of phase. It's, it's, it has all to do with wave signs and, and, you know, and electronics and things like that. But, um, it gives the guitar a certain, um, quack kind of almost like a vocal quality to the notes. Um, I've actually done that on one of my guitars intentionally because people do it intentionally sometimes if they want that sound. But, um, so I, I gather that at one point green, so he'd waffle on this as well. Like he said, mm-hmm. no, it, that, that never did happen. That, that wasn't the case, but apparently they've got video footage of a, a performance where the, one of the pickups was removed. So, so it's not, it, it never was the, it's not true that the pickup was never removed, but then come to find out that there was a person, they apparently know the, you know, luthier or guitar person who actually said he's the one who did the work on the guitar to, to you know, rewind the pickup in the different um, configuration to give it the out of phase. So right. I think I, now as far as any kind of like supernatural kind of um, 
qualities to the guitar. I'm unaware of any of that, but the, the sound that it had at least had something to do with the fact that it was wired in a, in a, in that fashion or whatever to give it that sound. So that's pretty much the extent of my knowledge on, on the guitar, which is interesting. Um, what I heard was that it was from the factory because others had said that um, theirs yeah. were reversed from the factory. Other, other guitars had come out from the same era and they looked at them. They said, no, no, this is done at the factory. And right. um, by the way, I like the interesting point that you made, it, the quack sound, Brian. I was wondering if you would demonstrate that for us. Is it sort of quack, quack, or is it quack, quack, quack? Or <laughs> I, I'm just trying to imagine it in, in my head here. Um, but I know that he handed that to Gary Moore. Um, was he some sort of kind of a mentor to Gary Moore? Is that right? Yeah. I believe so, yeah. And yeah. I'm not trying to – just so you know, I'm not trying to duck your comment on the quack thing. <laughs> oh, I like it. Love it. We're com coming to the end of the show, and it's all coming out now. Um, we're cutting yeah. loose here with the crazy jokes. No, but he passed it on to Gary Moore, who had it – was it for 25 years and recorded a number of albums with it. And like I say, Gary Moore, one of my favorite guitarists, he even had a – he recorded a complete album – uh, called uh, Blues for Greenie, uh, based on um, Peter Green's songs. Um, so towards the other end of his career, Gary Moore, you know, went completely blues, uh, you know, in his recordings, his studio recordings. Uh -huh. And then, um, so would one of you guys want to talk to talk us through what happened to the guitar after Gary Moore? I also want to let you know, I, I just uh, uh, put on a WhatsApp uh, the article from a guy named uh, Joel... Uh, Dancic, he was the luthier that, uh, that, that found that. And it's, it's a good article. And he wrote it in 2011. And, uh, he, uh, he, he also talks about, you know, that even, even with, uh, <laughs> Peter Green's guitar that, that, uh, Gary Moore still sounded like Gary Moore. <laughs> right, right, right. That's good. <laughs> but, but yeah, the, the, the thing was is he, he, uh, led it to him and, um, then he offered to sell it to him. Um, which is kind of kind of strange. He, he may have uh, some 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 accounts are that he gave it to him to keep, and then he decided, hey, can you spare a little bit of money? Because you know he was he was so into giving away his money, he didn't have any. <laughs> 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 and, uh, which uh, I, I find pretty funny by itself. But more, uh, uh, yeah, he played for a long time, and, and but. When he sold it, he was kind of kind of in a, a bad financial situation. Otherwise, he would have kept it. Uh, so it wasn't exactly a, a, a happy thing to do. But he needed the money. And he, he, I think he got like a million for it. Wow! Uh, it was, Which it is was a lot it, of money. It seems like this guitar changes hands based on somebody's like uh, poor uh, financial state. Because I think Kirk Hammett said he picked it up from whoever he bought it from because he was in the right place at the right time to somebody that was desperate for some cash. So, When you think about the green god, the green guitar, the green Manalishi, and all this green, these layers of green, that, that, that to some extent that guitar was the agency of the Manalishi, and that when he gave it away... He was he was actually trying to change his life, and so it, it's kind of interesting because I I know that he he uh, was 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 developing into kind of a, a, a Christian kind of thinking. I, I don't know that he ever really truly became a Christian, but he his uh, his ideas were definitely 
reflecting a, a Christian type of uh, uh, philosophy. And th- that may have been as much his brother's influence because he was the one that wrote, wrote the songs for him in the late 70s and early 80s. Hmm. So, you know, where, where does one start and the other begin? Uh, right. Um, right. But, uh, but by the same token, it, there's no doubt that he was in a certain position that couldn't maintain itself. It couldn't, uh, this wasn't sustainable. So when he gave that guitar away, it was a, it was a total change of his life. And this, the guitar was magical, right? I mean, that, that's what they called it. It was a magic guitar. So he passed the magic on to Moore. Right, and that's now been passed on to... Kirk Hammett. Right, from Metallica, right? Yeah. Now, the first person I think that got it after after Moore was a was a, a guy that had a music store. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And he put it on display, and then I guess he uh, needed money. He sold it off to a collector, and it passed through two or three collectors before Hammett got it. Was the figure $2 million? It was like 2.1, yeah. I was saying Kirk Hammett denied that that was, I think he, he's, I, I don't know. I thought the last thing that I saw was that he had said that that wasn't quite that much money. Right. Um, that, yeah, but that was what, how, I don't know how it came reported that that was what he paid for it, but. Yeah, there, there, there were a lot of articles that said that, that that was the amount. In fact, I think it was on eBay. Oh, really? If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. I, okay. I, I think, it, I think it was eBay or. Uh, or through something, it was a big deal when he bought it, hmm. and uh, they were all reporting 2.1 million. And yeah, and, and he's walked that back. Again, we, we've got this this layer of uh, reality and perception <laughs> that uh, the, this elusive quality, right? Uh, right. That, uh, which is true. I guess it depends on who's telling the story and when they're telling it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so even with the guitar and all that, I mean, the, the, it, in fact, there's this Red Army faction blues. You have these repeating ideas, these repeating actually phrases and, and, and stuff. He, he sometimes it's like a like a, a, a litany that that a, you know you might hear in a Catholic church, you know, where they repeat parts over and over and over and build on them. And, mm-hmm. and he does that yeah. with the book. The book is really, really interestingly done. I mean, he, he, uh, he, he, he understands three-dimensional thinking really well. And, uh, and, and, I, and I really appreciate that. Um, but at the same time, like I say, it can be really confusing, I think, for somebody that doesn't know what they're getting into. But that's still the idea, you know, the, the, this, this changeability of the reality. Uh, but even with this consistent metonymy, you know, where, where you have this deep structure of, of images and ideas that repeat themselves mm-hmm. and, uh, they progress the story. Really fascinating how that's working out in real life. Yeah. All right, guys. I think we'll, we'll start to wind up there. Uh, thank you both for your time. Before I let you go, um, I want to do, um, I want to ask you both. I'll start with you, Brian. What? is on your turntable this week, Brian. What have you been listening to mostly this week? Well, I happily got my 50th anniversary copy of Budgie's second album, Squawk, on Ooh. Picture Disc, which uh, bought directly from Budgie themselves, one Burke Shelley, which is really cool, mm-hmm. and uh, got an autographed um, card that came with it. Since it's a picture disc, they didn't want to write on the record itself. There's no out- outer sleeve for the for the picture disc, so... Cool. They, you get a 
got a card with it that had, which I was blown away because not only did Burke Shelley sign it, but he had got Tony Borge or Borge or however you pronounce his name, Tony Borge, the guitar player that was with them until the Impeccable album, but he signed it and uh, original drummer Steve Williams also signed it, which is really super cool. So I was pretty stoked to get that and uh, I've been playing that one around here and uh, it sounds good for a picture disc. Um, sometimes the quality can be questionable as far as the noise of the of the, the vinyl itself but it sounds really good and uh um, i've been rocking that one it, the, i'm telling you what you know budgie you guys who know budgie which you do but oh yeah i mean the heavy that they were they were heavy man and and like my speakers like oh, i gotta turn i gotta turn the bass frequencies down a little bit so i don't blow my speakers with that one <laughs> but yeah good uh good british uh prog hard heavy kind of Sabbathy type stuff for those who don't know. Um, I always have a hard That's time. Good. I always have a hard time describing Budgie. I once, I don't mean to get too far off track here, but I was once went, went to see Yes, so I figured I'd wear a Roger Dean shirt. And uh, Dean had done some of the album covers for what they, he did at least um, Never Turn Your Back on a Friend, which is an, a Budgie album. So I had worn that shirt to a Yes concert because I figured Yes fans will appreciate Roger Dean art. So um, mm-hmm. I was stand, standing in line to get my tickets from Will Call, and this guy turned to me and he, he, he says, Budgie, who's Budgie? And I said, well, <laughs> it's hard to just, they're hard to describe, you know? I said, I, I kind of imagine a, a mix of early Black Sabbath with maybe um, Getty Lee from Rush singing, and he said, that sounds terrible. <laughs> I said, I said, well, may, maybe I didn't do him justice in my in my comparison there, but but so yeah, I mean they're great great bands, uh, totally underrated, but tons of material out there for people to check out. So that's what I'm listening to, a squawk by Budgie. Cliff, what do you got on your something on your turntable? I, I don't really have a turntable. I in my car, I, I play CDs once in a while. The one that's sitting in the CD player right now is a a BB King at Folsom Prison. Hmm. It's a really sweet album. That's the one I've been listening to off and on uh, lately. I need to put more music in my car. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much what I've listened to. I, I uh, before that I was kind of on a kick with uh, Art Garfunkel, and it was it was like a, a greatest hits, mm. uh, it, which was which was good stuff. I mean, Bridge Over Troubled Waters on there, but. Uh, uh, that one that uh, uh, all I know, uh, which is just the song, just still to this day, just knocks my socks off. Cool, Cliff. Uh, what's been on your turntable, Garth? You got what you've been listening to? Well, I've been listening to a couple of things, but one thing I wanted to tell you that um, I received in the mail a fiftieth um, anniversary picture disc of Budgie. Uh, their very first album titled Budgie, and it came with a card that had uh, autographed by all three members. Um, I didn't order this disc. I wasn't expecting this disc, and it's a lovely birthday present from my co-host Brian there. Um, and I can tell <laughs> you, I've had it for uh, four or five days, and I'm still buzzing uh, because, you know, it's a very special... Uh, I love Budgie, and I have since I was, ooh, I don't know, 13 or 14 and that's not that long ago uh, so I'm a big Budgie fan and Brian and I found each other being Budgie fans sort of uh, a few years ago uh, one of the things we clicked first we're both Budgie fans but what I've been listening to is a um, another 
prog rock band from the British Isles, uh, hailing from Scotland called Beggar's Opera. Um, now, Beggar's mm-hmm. Opera, brilliant uh, Scottish prog rock band, operational from around 69 to 1976. they got a number of good albums. So last few days, uh, my wife and I have been listening to each and every album of theirs. Um, and they contain all the good elements of good prog rock, you know, good organ, good guitar work, interesting vocals, interesting um, uh, lyrics and themes, uh, very re- relaxing to listen to. That doesn't mean to say you play it quietly, you can play it loud, but it's a, I just find um, the, uh, Beggar's Opera quite relaxing. Um, they also make use of the Mellotron uh, instrument, which has always, always fascinated me for since I was about 14, the Mellotron has been one of those instruments that's fascinated me. And a, a, a number of prog rock bands, you know, from back in the day, they made use of the Mellotron. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, one of the things about about these guys is that they also do a couple of super interesting covers that you go, when I tell you what they are, you're going to go, what? They do this cover of MacArthur Park. And ah. I've got to tell you, you know, that's a very long song and it's very complex and it's one of the, those songs that was a hit for uh, Richard Harris uh, way back in the day and um, it's they, they didn't think it was going to be a hit because it's such a long song. Uh, but anyway, these guys do a really great cover of that, but they also do classical gas. Um, do you guys mm-hmm. remember the... <laughs> Oh, oh, that's cool. Oh, it's just a couple of covers that they throw in a couple of albums. So um, they're really interesting. Um, and what might be of interest to some people who are going, uh, who are these guys? Beggar's Opera? <laughs> well, um, the guitarist, uh, Ricky Gardner, he went on to play on David Bowie's Low album. And he also played on Iggy Pop's Lust for Life uh, disc. But he also co-wrote The Passenger, the tune The Passenger, one of my favourite Iggy Pop songs. Mm-hmm. And that features on the Lust for Life album. And as far as I'm aware, this tune is about Iggy Pop's time in Berlin with David Bowie, right? And it's loosely based on a poem by none, none other than Jim Morrison. So it's funny how these, so many of these things tie in nicely. Uh, isn't it? Since our last show here on Philosopher Rock was about Jim Morrison and the Doors, and then you've got that Iggy Pop, David Bowie connection there with this guy from A Beggar's Opera. So uh, get onto Spotify, get onto YouTube, and give him a, a whirl if you like uh, the, the typical-sounding British-era prog rock. These guys, Scottish, uh, love the Scots, got to give them their due there. Um, and uh, so uh, Beggar's Opera is what's been on my mind. Um, so last thoughts. I'll throw it to you, Cliff, for your last thoughts before we say goodbye to you, and then you, Brian. I, I was going to say, Iggy Pop, you know, mentioning him, uh, he uh, he did an album with uh, Goran Bregovic. Goran Bregovic, yeah. Uh, and he's uh, he's a, a Balkan artist that, you know, we were talking about Schlager, right? And, and and he uh, he who's Yugoslav and and he uh, in Turkey he's one of the biggest things ever. It, so this album he did with uh, Iggy was partly the soundtrack to uh, one of um, Johnny Depp's movies. He he does like like Schlager. I mean it's mm, it's yeah. it's a really really bizarre style of music and uh, and, and and they love him in Turkey. Because they they uh, they do similar uh, music of their own. Schlager ist mein Nummer eins. Nummer eins. 
yeah, he he uh, he worked with he worked with um, with Iggy, and it was part of the soundtrack to one of the movies, Arizona Dream, is what it's called. And uh, really bizarre movie, good movie though. I, I enjoyed it a lot. It had Faye Dunaway in it. Okay, I don't know. And, it. Uh, yeah. Oh, it, it, it's it's totally tripped out. <laughs> they have flying. They have literally flying fish. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> in the movie and the uh, and, and the death car is uh, is this machine that they that they're messing around with. But yeah, it's Goran Bregovich and uh, the movies that in the Arizona Dream. It was in the, in the late, uh, early nineties. All righty, well, we'll leave it there, lads. Um, uh, Cliff, uh, I just want to say thanks very much for coming on the show and giving us your time. I uh, really appreciated it. And, um, uh, oh, my pleasure. Yeah, well, thank you. Brian? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, uh, as always, as a co-host. And uh, thanks, Cliff, for coming on with your obvious wealth of knowledge. I appreciate you your input on this topic today. Well, well thanks for having me.